It's a common theme when people introduce me to communicate to others how much I love them, which makes me think I'm not doing a very good job of that. Uh, and I just gotta, I, I gotta warn you, it, it's, uh, I'm not gonna do anything today gonna help that. Um, this subject is near and dear to my heart, uh, both as a pastor, as a parent, uh, just kind of sensing what God is up to. And, and uh, there's, some, there's gonna be some energy, some angst here, and I'm not apologizing for that, I'm just warning you. Um, I'm an eight on the Enneagram. I did not get very much sleep. Um, it, there's gonna be some angst, so I, I hope that you remember that introduction. Uh, my name is Brian Mowry, and I am your friend. Um, in Genesis 12, maybe I should get drawn, maybe I should do a drawn set. Like, turn to the person to your right. Come on, let's do this. Well, you gotta, I gotta tell you what to say. Forget it, I messed it up. All right, yeah. I, there's nothing I say today is gonna rhyme. Uh, it may not even be complete sentences, but Genesis 12, God comes to an Iraqi named Abraham, and he said, I'm gonna bless you. And through you, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. And so uh, the God of the Bible became uh, the God of Abraham and then became the God of Abraham and Isaac and then became the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God is a God of generations. Uh, God is a God who blesses in order to bless others, to bless others, to bless others. And we see this move out in the scriptures geographically so that the gospel should be preached in, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. Uh, we, wanna, we wanna build churches that have a passion for sharing the gospel geographically, moving out in concentric circles, that, that every church has faith, that has desire, and, and perhaps even a plan to see other churches planted. Because this is the way God's moved. God's love in our life, it, it, we're not to receive this. We're not to be like cul-de-sacs of God's love. We're meant to be conduits, that it moves through us, it flows through us. Uh, his love is not static, it moves, it creates, it pushes. And so we wanna build churches with the expectation that as God pours his love on us, that we need to, we need to be ready to, to see that love spill out on others. And we see that uh, geographically, we also see that very clearly generationally. God is a father and he wants a family. First um, uh, Peter 3 says that, for Christ suffered once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us back to God. John Calvin, speaking of this verse, said God wanted his kids back. And that's what God is after. He's after of reclaiming his children. He wants to gather in a family, and he wants to use you and I to do that. He wants to bless you. He wants to pour out his love on you. He wants to pour out his spirit on you. He wants to pour out his power on you. He wants to bless you uh, beyond your wildest imagination, and he wants that to flow you through you to others, and today we're talking about generations. And we're in Psalm 145. If you want to turn there, that is where, that is the, 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 uh, the text, not only for the message, but really where we got this theme. And I've got some, I got some middle school and high schoolers that are going to come help me. Why don't you guys come on up here? We're, we're, they're going to read this for you. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works and another shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty. 
and on the wondrous works I will meditate. They tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. This is the word of the Lord. I think God is up to something in the younger generation. I th- we saw that early this year uh, in Kentucky at Asbury. Uh, He just sovereignly moved among young people, young people leading a revival for young people. And I think that's awesome. I think God does that. God will sovereignly come to people when his people aren't doing what his people are supposed to do. And what his people are supposed to be doing is they're supposed to be commending the works of God from one generation to another. And I just believe that this is, uh, I know it's in our heart and I want to see it in our practice. I just believe that uh, we should be like tripping over each other to serve in kids ministry. I think we should be tripping over each other to serve in, in youth ministry, whereas parents and mentors, we're opening up the Bible with the next generation, creating spiritual legacies. I love what Paul tells young Timothy. He says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother and then your mother, and now it dwells in you. This is biologically and spiritually. So how are we doing? Well, this is where it gets a little rough. Um, if you're not aware, there's a group called Barna, and what they do is they do research for the church in the States, and they, they are a mirror. And I don't know if we have any mirror people in the room, but the mirror can be horrible because it's brutally honest. Now, the mirror's not mad at you. Uh, it's not angry at you. Uh, it's not out to get you, but it's there to give you like an honest assessment of the way things are so that you can make some adjustments. And Barna is like that. The Barna is trying to show the church in the United States, hey, this is what you look like. This is what's happening. This is what's going on. It's a Barna. They don't have an angle or, or, or slant. They just want to help the church. And in 2019, they followed 18 to 29 year olds. That is Gen Z and early millennials. There are, I know some of you may want to jump in this group. Uh, there are those who are born in the early 80s, but there's a term for you and I'm not making this up. It's ge- uh, geriatric millennials. And you're in that group. <laughs> Barna isn't talking about you. And so on behalf of of Gen Xers, I just want to welcome you to, you already had your chance generation. And so (laughs) you are going to join the rest of us who will no longer work out to improve their appearance. You just work out to stay flexible, right? So like, I just want to get a cup of coffee out of the cabinet without pulling a muscle. That's, so welcome, welcome, welcome. Keep your shirt on at the pool. That's, uh, that's on behalf of the younger generation. And the women and children. All right. So we, uh, I mean, I'm getting stuff from ARP. I'm not kidding. I'm getting, and uh, twice in the past year, I've been asked if I was a grandpa. And um, yeah. So anyway, that has nothing to do with my angst, by the way. So they asked these 18, 29 year olds who grew up in the church. Okay. This is the fruit of growing up in the church in America. This isn't people outside of the church. This is people who grew up in the church in America. They went to our Sunday schools. They went to our BBSs. They did all this stuff. Church in America. Okay, here are the numbers. 22% of them identify as prodigals or ex-Christians. A million kids in a decade just left the church. For whatever reason, they left. It's forget it. I'm out of this. And they walked away. 22%. 30% consider themselves nomads. Now, they would say that they're a Christian, but they haven't been to a church in six months. They say, are you a Christian? Yes. Are you involved in a church? No. So essentially, more than 50% of kids that grew up in the church in the decade 2009 to 2019 left, just walked away, forgetting them out. 38% are habitual churchgoers. 
They would describe themselves as Christian, have attended a church at least once in the past month, with no but have no foundational core beliefs that are associated with being an intentional, engaged disciple. Basically, church folk who have no intention of loving Jesus, but consider themselves moral because they attend a church. We have a massive amount of church folk in our churches that I think act like false teachers among us because they represent to the next generation a false gospel. That's legalistic, more concerned with the outside than the inside. Less than 50% of this group would say that uh, Jesus brings them any kind of a joy. And then 10% of people who grew up in the church between 2009, 2019, 10%, they would be called resilient disciples. Now, I think that resilient word is generous because it, it feels kind of a low bar. They attend at least monthly. They engage the church outside of Sunday. They do trust the authority of scripture. They are committed to Jesus personally affirmed that he was crucified and raised from the dead, expressed a desire to transform the broader society as an outcome of their faith. So what do we do? Like, how do we respond to this? And, you know, what's the pep talk? What's the instruction? What are the marching orders? Well, the first thing I want to say, and this is important, that this is on us. This is our legacy. It is on us to commend to the next generation. It is not on them to discover it. It is on us. It is both our privilege and responsibility. And I know that the grace of God can triumph over absent parenting and it can triumph over bad churches. And thank God we have those stories. Thank God that some of you are those stories. And we can have kids that run from health. We have the story of the prodigal son. We have no indication that the father did anything wrong. The son just says, I'm out. And that'll happen. My parents had six kids, two stayed, four left, three returned and then another left again. So of their six kids, four in that category of resilient disciple, two not. Uh, same parenting, prayed for us all, prophesied for us all, different results. So that can happen too. But outside of that, we need to feel this as our responsibility, might I say, our privilege. So yes, we wanna say to the next generation here, we love you, we value you, we want the best for you, but one of the things that's on my heart that I wanna say to the older generation is let's create churches filled with hundreds of middle school and high school kids that create a safe place for them to explore their doubts and their struggles so that they can engage with the joy and the beauty of the gospel, be affirmed in their gifting, and yes, called to holiness in the context of a family-like atmosphere. Like there should be, a, I really think there should be a waiting list to work with kids and middle school kids and high school kids and all the, um, like, you know, you come like, man, I wanna work with middle school kids. I look, I'm sorry. Like, you just can't right now. We have enough. But that's not the story in our churches. It's not the story here. They're over there and God bless them. They're, they're making it happen. There's some recruiter. I don't know if you guys have businesses, but if you need some salespeople, you need to get the people who recruited people to be back there because they were awesome. They did an amazing, amazing job. So we need to feel this as a responsibility and culture hates kids. Our culture hates kids. Nothing but interruptions to our personal agendas, ruining my career, ruining the planet. And Jesus is like, let them come to me. You don't want them, I will take them. Psalm 127, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. Fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children's of one youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. And so there's an ideology and culture that doesn't value kids that we have to understand at some level has seeped into us. We need to be aware of that. 
They say, no, they are a blessing. That's biologically and spiritual, by the way. You can have a bunch of kids like the Munchniks in, at Jubilee. They've got no twins, but they got eight kids, right? And they're not here because they, they essentially have to drive a bus to get here. And so, and when we, we have a, at Sunset Hills, we have an 8.30 service, we have a 10.30 service, and we have a Munchnik service. Like they, they're just like... <laughs> You just, guys, you're just gonna have to do your own thing. We're sorry. So it can be that, and God bless that, and I think that's amazing, but it also can be single people who act as spiritual mothers and fathers. Biological marriage and family is optional in the kingdom of God, but loving the next generation isn't. So we take responsibility, but notice here too, it's not just that we take responsibility, there's a way that we do it, and that is that we declare the facts of God, or excuse me, that we don't just declare the facts of God, but we declare the works of God. So it's not just about his facts, but it's about his works. We pass on what is done. If you just kind of go through that passage, it's his works, his mighty acts, his majesty, his deeds, his greatness, his abundant goodness, his righteousness. God is someone to be experienced and encountered and not merely studied. Jerron said last night, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Come and experience my yoke. My yoke is easy. That The burden that you're carrying in life, in the world, or in religion is heavy. I want to take that from you. Come and experience me. And we need to be those that don't just spit out facts about God, but we commend the works of God. This is what he's like. This is what he does. This is what he's done for me. And this has always been difficult for God's people. And so when you read about the Israelites, God had to give them things to help them remember what he had done. So he gives them all these festivals. And they were all about, don't forget what I did. Don't forget that I, I took you out of Egypt. It wasn't about you. This happened well before I gave you the law. I took you out. I just saved you because I am me. And I want a people for myself to worship. And then you're like, what am I going to say? Don't worry about it. I got you. What are we going to eat? Don't worry about it. I got you. What are we going to drink? Don't worry about where I got you. Don't worry about where you're going to go. Don't worry. I got you. I got you. I got you. And we still rebelled. And he still loved us. He's like, do not forget what I've done for you. And this is true. This is even about in tithing. Tithing is not just about a tenth. It's about your first tenth. But there's a reason why. It's not just some law thing that we follow. It's meant to remind us of what he's done. In Exodus 13, it says, and when in time to come to your, when your son comes and asks you, what does this mean? What talking about? So, so you have a son, you know, you're a rancher and you've got a bunch of cattle and you've got this business and your son comes to you and says, hey dad, I got, I got a question for you. Yes, son, what is it? Well, I, I've noticed that every time you get, like there's a cattle born, like you give the first and the best. And like, I'm not trying to tell you how to run your business, but that doesn't seem like a smart way of doing it. And then he said, then I'll say something like this. Your dad, I wasn't always a rancher. I used to be a slave. I was a slave in Egypt. But God's mighty hand pulled me out and he's given us everything that we have. So I will gladly give the first 10% that I have. It is, it is all about what he's done. We must commend the works of Jesus, which means the best way that you and I can do this is to continually experience God. What, he's, what has he done in your life in the past year, the past month, the past week? Some of us, you know, have our faith date, uh, date stamped. Like God did an awesome thing in 1972 and 1992, like when I was in college or before I had kids. And, and like we have this experience of God that is ancient and we're just kind of coasting on that experience and we've fallen back into, well, I go to church, I read my Bible, I do these things but no real encounter, no real experience. Paul told the Philippians that he wasn't content with his resume or his past experiences. So he's forgetting what lies behind, and I'm pressing forward to know him. I don't know him yet. If there's anyone who could say confidently, I know Jesus, 
He's like, man, I don't. The closer I get to him, the more I realize how much more there is. And I keep pressing in. I keep pressing in. I keep pressing in. I keep pressing in. You and I cannot stop getting old, but our stories don't have to be. We can have new stories. He's moving us from one degree of glory to the next. Secondly, be places of grace. Verse eight and nine, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is all over what he has made. Is that the message? I mean, I think few Christians would argue with the doctrine of grace, but you can have a doctrine of grace and not have an atmosphere of grace. An atmosphere of grace is all about emphasis. By the way, it's connected a whole lot to what we just talked about, which is if you're not continually experiencing God, you're forgetting who God really is. And he is someone, you know, angry guy in the sky that you have to keep happy. When he's someone who wants to communicate to you how much he loves you. The picture we get of, of God is that he's at our door and he's knocking and he's knocking and he's waiting for you to answer. He wants to have encounters with you every single day. So we've got to be people of grace. And so it's all about emphasis and we can kind of communicate uh, the wrong message by what we emphasize. I'm driving down here and I'm seeing these billboards and the billboard says, uh, genuine Christians obey the teachings of Jesus. Now, beside the fact that there's probably not a whole lot of genuine Christians, if that's true, I mean, I do believe genuine Christians want to obey the teachings of Jesus. But if we say we have no sin, we are a liar. So Beside the fact that that's not entirely true, is that the main message? Is that what we want people to do? Just be better. I read um, in 2003, I saw this article in Real Simple Magazine. I know exactly what you're thinking. Brian, what in the world are you reading in Real Simple? <laughs> it's my wife's, come on guys. And, uh, and in this magazine, so this, it said that it was, laying, the reason what caught my eye was it said, that it said the, the teaching of the top five religions. And so under Christianity, it said that Christians who follow the 10 commandments will win salvation in heaven. Like that was what it said. Now, hey, that's on us. Where do you think they got that? It's about emphasis. It's about emphasis. What is our emphasis? Is it about what we do or is it about what God has done? The priority of scripture is not what you can do for God but it was God has done for you. While we were still sinners, while we were hating him and actively against him, Christ died for you. He died for us. And growing up, I mean, it was just confusing. I mean, it was the 80s and 90s, and I know like the height of legalism, but I know that the gospel was preached, but I heard something different. And I, and I remember just someone, I remember being in a service and someone telling me like, hey, you need to take your hat off. I remember, I remember walking down in the street and with my Walkman and somebody asking me, pulling me aside and said, hey, what are you listening to? And that better be really lame. Like if it's not lame, it's not. <laughs> I remember going to a youth group and they put on a video by a group called Jam, uh, Jesus and Me. Because if it's not an acronym, it ain't Christian. So we, uh, <laughs> And it was illustrating all these do's and don'ts of Christianity and, you know, no rated R movies, no sex before marriage, no cussing. There's a way to dress. There's a way to date. There's bracelets to wear. There's bumper stickers to attach to your car or your Bible. There's all these things that you do that Christians do, and this is what life in Jesus is all about. So I left my teenage years thinking that the main message of Christianity is a moral code to adhere to. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom 
of God. And to be honest with you, a lot of churches stop there. So don't do those things. Don't, don't be immoral. Don't be an idolater. Don't be an adulterer. Don't be a reviler. Stop reviling things. Like whatever that means, don't revile. <laughs> but check out what Paul says. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. You're the passive agent in that, which means you didn't do anything. God did something to you. That's the story. The story is about what God has done in your life, what God is doing in my life. And it creates this atmosphere of grace where people who, who struggle can, can see their way in. Jesus comes on the scene and to say that he shattered people's expectations of how God would address sinners cannot be overstated. Samaritan woman, tax collectors. I mean, he's raging against religious and cultural norms. In Luke 15, it angered the religious people. So they were angered. So he tells them a parable about lost things, but they were angered. And this, by the way, is the offense of the cross, which is one of the most misrepresented terms I think that we communicate. People usually talk about the offense of the cross to, to represent people's anger toward God, what God forbids. You know, there's one way to God and marriage and sexuality, divorce, etc. And so when they get angry, a Christian will shrug their shoulders and say, well, that's just the, the you know, the cross is offensive. That's just what, you know, that's what Jesus told us. That is totally wrong. Now, to be clear, the standards of Jesus are offensive. Jesus says, the world will hate me because I testify that their works are evil. But the offense of the commands of Christ and the offense of the cross of Christ are the exact opposite. God forgives racial, a racist, genocidal, child-sacrificing Nineveh, and Jonah throws a fit. God the Father embraces the return of the prodigal son, and the older brother fumes. Jesus forgives prostitutes and tax collectors, and the Pharisees kill him for it. The offense of the cross is, is not about, is not who it keeps out, but who it lets in. And, and we need to have churches that communicate, not like, hey, be like us, but like, man, there's room. Like, there's room around the cross. Look what he's done in my life. I mean, Paul said this to Timothy. He says, I am confident of this, that Jesus Christ came to save. This is at the end of his life, by the way, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And then he says this in verse 16. Essentially, he says, I'm convinced really the only reason why God showed me mercy is to demonstrate that anybody can get saved. That was his testimony. Is that your testimony? I can't figure out why Jesus saved me other than just to prove to everyone else that anybody can get in. If I can get in, anybody can get in. <laughs> He was so enamored by the grace of God. And that's what we need. We need to have communities to bring in the next generation. Communities that like, I cannot believe I'm in. Not believe, I can't believe you just did that. I can't believe you just wore that. I can't believe you just said that. I can't believe he let me in. He'll let you in too. The writer of Hebrews is so clear that Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without sin. And because of this, you and I have an empathetic high priest. Are you struggling? You had an empathetic high priest. You have doubt, you have an empathetic high priest. You riddle with shame, you have an empathetic high priest. Let me tell you something about your sin. Your sin does not compare, does not measure up to God's grace. Where sin abounds, God's grace abounds all the more. Now listen, receive that grace and walk in that grace, which means that you do repent, parents. First John, I already quoted this. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Bible says that basically you can do two things with sin. You can either confess it or you can be deceived by it. 
So you're either confessing your sin or you're being deceived by your sin. Why is that important in this conversation? Because here's what happens. If you don't confess your sin, what you're demonstrating, what you're communicating is that you're okay the way that you are. And you come up with some arbitrary list of rules that you need to follow when in reality, all all fall short of the glory of God. And we need to be those that saying, look, I struggle. I've got issues and the grace of God covers it. If I confess my sin, he, man, son, daughter, you gotta, you gotta meet this king. What The uh, Samaritan woman, when Jesus comes to her, she goes into town. She's like, I wanna tell you about a man who told me everything that I ever did. When is that good news? Except that he forgives you and he purifies you from all unrighteousness. It's like, so Jesus is like, it's like a treasure in a field. Like the, the kingdom of God's like a treasure. In a, like you find it and you're like, I can't believe no one's found this yet. I'm gonna sell everything that I have so that I can have this. It's atmosphere of grace. We need to confess our sins. We're not deceived by sin. We need to have churches that are safe for people who fall short and move together in this long, long, long journey as we follow our shepherd king. Be places of joy. What we share should lead to worship, but this text also says it's communicated best through worship. So we don't just teach his works, we praise his works. We commend them. This is a John Piper quote. The aim of our, and it's gonna sound like one too, the aim of our education is exaltation. The means of our education is exaltation. Like we worship over who God is. It's not like, well, it's just what the Bible says. No, he's better. We have a better argument then this is just what the Bible says. Yeah, it's what it says, but he's better. He's greater. It's like that, yes, that's true. But it's kind of like, it's kind of like you're a coach on a basketball team and you put me in the game when you have Michael Jordan on the bench. (laughs) Put him in the game. You have a better argument, but it's only better if he's better. One of the things that boggles my mind is parents. Just, I probably offended you, but parents who send their kids to Christian school and then blow off the church. That makes no sense to me whatsoever. I'm gonna keep you in my mind. I'm keeping you to be a good little boy or girl and then I'm gonna demonstrate to you. So I'm gonna take you to to whatever sport you wanna go. We'll blow off the church. We'll do whatever you wanna do. We'll make life about you and we'll do what we wanna do. We'll buy the cars we want, the houses we want. We'll live however we want and we'll demonstrate to you that actually he's someone that you have to keep happy but he's not really better. It's just not gonna work. It hasn't worked. It hasn't worked. The boomer generation put career first. The Gen X generation put kids first. The millennial generation put being true to themselves first. Man, I would love Gen X, Gen Z. I would love, I would love, I would love to see what God could do in a generation that authentically put the kingdom first. That declared with their mouth and their lives that he's better. So 20% of Gen Z uh, identifies as LGBTQ. What, what, what's your answer to that? The Bible says it's wrong. Man, there's, a, there's something better. There's something better. And so we have these two divergence. It's either acceptance or deliverance. It all centers around this idol of marriage and sex, that that is the apex of experience in this world. It's certainly true in culture, but it's in the church as well. So we got to figure you out if you're going to be a part of this. But Jesus was so clear. The greatest love to experience is not sexual. It's sacrificial. Greater love has no man than this. 
than a man who lays down his life for his friends. I want to introduce you to someone who laid down his life for you, and he loves you, and he's pursued you, and he's seeking you. And when they experience that, when the love of God touches them in that broken place, they, don't, they won't need another argument. He, and that's what he wants to do. And that's what we need to say, that he's, we have to worship over these things. It's not just because we have to do it and what it says, but it's like, it's better. It's more fulfilling. I love how Eugene Peterson puts First Thessalonians 3. He says, may the master pour on the love, pour on the love so it fills your life and splashes over to everyone around you. That's what we want. We want, we want to be churches and communities of where his love just pours on us and it splashes to everyone. He wants to bless you. He wants to bless you so that you can bless others. He's gonna give you good things. He'll even, he'll even give you himself. He'll bless you with himself. And this is what we need. Come on, beloved, Jude says, keep yourself in the love of God. Paul, in prison, outer life, crumbling. What are we gonna do? His prayer was that they would, by the power of the Spirit, know the full dimension of his love. And through that love, they would do more than they ever hope or imagine because they would get back in touch which with what is truly, truly greater. And this is ultimately what did it for me. I mean, I just remember being in Jubilee Church in the early days and hearing John Lanferman and thunder away about this vision of the early church and, and what Jesus wants to do. And, and it was just like, man, what I have planned for my life just feels so lame. I was pretty excited about it, but in light of this, it just felt lame. And it, people always ask, man, how did you like leave your career? And you, know, you gave that up. Wasn't that a big decision? And I'm like, honestly, no. I mean, you read the story of the pearl of great price, the, the, the treasure in the field. It's not one mention of sacrifice. It mentions joy. This is a great deal. There's no sacrifice. Check out Jim Elliott. You guys know who Jim Elliott is? <laughs> I love that you said that, whoever you are. I mean, Jim Elliott was like the most, probably like the most famous evangelist that didn't actually like win a soul, really. I mean, just what he did is he gave his life to this Indian tribe in South America, I believe. And he wrote this to his parents. He says, I do not wonder that you were saddened at the word of my going to South America. Okay, what's up? He replies, I was a little bit insecure about that. Um, this is nothing else than what the Lord warned us when he told his disciples that they must be so infatuated, oh, I love that word, with the kingdom and following him that all other allegiances must become as though they were not. And he never excluded the family tie. In fact, those loves that we regard as closest, he told us must become as hate in comparison with our desires to hold up his cause. Grieve not then if your sons seem to desert you, but rejoice rather seeing the will of God done gladly. Remember how the psalmist described children. He said that they were a heritage from the Lord and that every man should be happy who has his quiver full of them, and what is a quiver full of arrows, and what are arrows but to shoot? So with the strong arms of prayer, draw the bowstring back and let the arrows fly, all of them straight at the enemy's host. Now we're trying to figure out how we can help our kids, the next generation, see the glory of God, but I long for a day like this where our children actually teach us about the glory of God. Jim Elliott's like trying to console his parents as he sacrificed his life for the kingdom, which of course was no sacrifice. What are we witnesses of? The truth in the abstract? Better lives? 
You and I are witnesses of the surpassing worth and greatness of Jesus. So this ultimately, this isn't about putting our kids first. This is ultimately about you and I putting the kingdom first. I don't want us to hear this message and be like, oh man, I really gotta like, yeah, show your attention to your kids, of course. Love them, care for them. But you got to show, we have to be places that show and demonstrate and live that there is something better. That's what the early church lived. You know, they're gathered in a room and they were getting in prison and some were getting their stuff stolen, some were, were being killed. And they made a commitment to continue because then they said this. They said that we had compassion on the prisoners and we joyfully accepted the plundering of our property because we knew we had a better possession and an abiding one, one that lasts forever. And that's what we're after. We're after building churches of what seems like radical sacrifice, which is no sacrifice at all. We just found something better. We just found something better that we're willing to give everything that we have in order to have it. We have to communicate churches that way. A couple things as I, as I close and real relationships. This article talked about the need for real relationship. And really this is a community affair. And I want to encourage us in our biological families, but I want to encourage us in spiritual families. In fact, the more that we learn to rely on each other, the taller we stand. One of the things that, if you don't know this, about the Jewish community is that in America, they are disproportionately successful. Uh, I did a study back on this in 2010, and at the time, uh, uh, I think U.S. Weekly noted that 51 of the 100 most influential people in the U.S. were Jewish, even though they were 2.5% of the population. They have the highest level of incomes and education among all racial groups. They dominate in arts and entertainment. Almost half of Nobel Prize winners since 1901 in science have been Jewish, including Albert Einstein. If you see uh, a jazz musician who's white, He's Jewish, and so we, um, a good one anyway, and so we, and it comes down to one thing for them, that as a marginalized race, they lean strong into one another. So if a father has knowledge in one subject, that father doesn't just teach his kids, he teaches the entire community's kids, and they work together, and you and I need to work together. I mean, one of the prayer for Rachel and I, when we are, for our kids, is like, man, I hope. We were praying for like when they get into their teenage years that there'd be radical, uh, kingdom-seeking 20-somethings and beyond that would get around them and love them. And we're so grateful that that happens. I mean, there's so many people who, I mean, Sam and Ben McCutcheon, Wes McCutcheon, he's a good, <laughs> he's a really good friend of mine. And um, <laughs> I'm better with numbers and names. He's friend number 13, and so we, anyway. Uh, <laughs> Come on, it's my lucky number. The, um, the Harringtons, just found this out the other day. Alyssa and Molly, who are in Ella's life, they've just booked tickets to go visit her in California when she's on the gap year. And this is like a dream for us. And it's just bonkers to me why more parents don't take advantage of that and like do whatever they can to get their kids around other families. And I mean, presumably, okay, so I'm the pastor of the church and like I'm quite capable of like, you know, teaching my kids the Bible, and at least my wife is really nice, and so she's really nice to them, and so, like, between the two of us, like, we can give them those kinds of things, but at the end of the day, man, the community of God is, like, where it's at, and I, we have to be communities where we're, we're not just looking after our own household, but we're helping each other with other households. So one is that we need real relationships among each other. Secondly, this article talks about cultural discernment. 
Discernment is something that, unfortunately, we don't always walk in. Jesus told a parable about the kingdom of God, and he talked about how he went out and, you know, he sowed seed, and, 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 and it produced wheat, but then an enemy snuck in, and it produced weeds, and so you had weeds, listen to me, grow up among, not outside, but among the wheat. So you have wheat and weeds growing up together, and the temptation that you and I will face is, on one extreme, we'll think it's all wheat. And then on the other extreme, we'll want to get rid of, we'll want to go on a rampage to get rid of the weeds. But Jesus clearly says, they're not all wheat. And, but then he also says, but don't go and take out the weeds. Leave that to me. And so when it comes to our relationship with the world, there are some who demand that you accept it all. It's all good. And then there are, there are some, I won't name names, who demand that you dismiss it all. But Christians are called to discern it all. And we need to walk in discernment. Jesus said that we are to be innocent as doves, but wise as serpents. We love people, but we speak up. Paul said that he learned to destroy every argument that came against the knowledge of Christ. So we love people and we destroy arguments. Sometimes we love arguments and we destroy people. And so to have this, to have this kind of discernment, which is hard, harder than it seems, it takes proximity, it takes relationship, it takes conviction in the word. I think you lead with compassion. A couple of reasons. First of all, when God introduces himself in the Bible, the first time he talks about himself, he says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious one, Exodus 34. When Jesus came on the scene, if you study this, if you follow the emotional life of Jesus, by far and away, the thing he expressed the most was compassion. When he looked at the crowds, he was not filled with disgust. He was filled with compassion. Take the, the log out of your eye before you can address the speck. It will help you with that. Compassion will help you with that. It'll put you in a posture of humility and grace. So if you dismiss it all, you'll be a Pharisee in no time. But if you demand that people accept it all, you'll become an Absalom. You'll Absalom God. What do I mean by that? Well, Absalom was King David's treasonous son who tried to steal the kingdom from his father. And here's how. He turned the hearts against David by standing outside the court, telling people as they went in, you say, you know, I wish the king's decrees weren't this way too. You know, I'm sorry. You know, if I were king, it would be different. And uh, I used to do this with God. I used to, in preaching harder subjects, I would say things like this, like, man, I wish the Bible didn't say stuff like this, but it does. To kind of like soften the blow about what I was getting ready to say. Man, I w you know what, it's just, you know, I wish it didn't say it this way, but it, it does. So we just kind of have to, you know, deal with it and accept it. When we do this, we are Absalom in God. When, when as Christians, we say things like this, or we avoid teaching, or we, you know, out of empathy or whatever it is, a desire for approval, we're essentially standing outside the king's court and saying, you know, I wish it wasn't this way. If it was up to me, it would be different. That has, it, that does two terrible things. One, it fosters suspicion toward the goodness of the king's decrees, and by extension, his character. But it also presents ourselves as more loving than the king, which is demonic. And so, we, we're living in this world where we, we're, the younger generation needs us to be discerning. And we need to help them be discerning. Not by accepting it all and not by dismissing it all, but by discerning it all. By being able to come in and present, hey, this is what the scripture says, but doing so with such compassion. And we have so much resources in this. So I'm gonna encourage us in, in our discernment. And there's, there are lies coming at our kids, so we do have to speak out the truth. But if you don't bring, if you, don't, if you confuse ideology with the people that it affects, you're, you're gonna miss it. And you won't be discerning. And you'll, and you'll do what Jesus tells you not to do, which is you're in your attempt to pull up a bunch of weeds, you'll end up pulling up a bunch of wheat. 
in the meantime, and you will not pass it on to the next generation. We need to be discerning. We need to have our hearts full of compassion for people and being able at the same time to pull down every argument that comes against the knowledge of God. I want to tell a couple stories about a couple people because we want this to infiltrate our churches. We want amazing, uh, we want to help parents. We want to have thriving kids ministries, middle school, high school. And then as they get into college, we want them to do things like gap year, give their life away. Parents, encourage them in that. Be excited that they found something better. Don't hold them back, hoping that they would get college, hoping that they would go out and get a better job. Encourage them in these things. We want people to, we love for kids to grow up, pick towns and cities where we have churches. Pick colleges where we have churches. Pick careers that enable them to, to leverage everything that they have for the church. because we see the kingdom as something bigger and better. And uh, I hate to do this to him. I didn't realize, I wish you weren't, I wish you weren't leading worship. I'm sorry, I mean, not that you're not good at leading worship. <laughs> let, me, let me introduce you to Elijah uh, at 12. And um, He's come a long way in two weeks. Uh, I'm just kidding, sorry. Um, so he has great parents. But a, great parents weren't everything. Um, he had guys in his life, guys like Matt Sweetman, who came and, and took him out to coffee and opened the Bible with him and loved them and challenged them. Elijah grew up and gave himself to the church and he did internships and now he's on staff with us and he's an elder in the church and he's behind a lot of what we do. It doesn't happen by accident. It didn't happen by accident. It happened because someone, someone's intentionally invested in his life beyond his parents. Let me introduce you to a guy named Wes. If you have anything against anyone, just let me know. And uh, So Wes also has great parents, amazing parents. And, um, but they weren't enough either. And actually Elijah came alongside him and, and others like I think Mike Caesar and some of the other youth leaders that we had at Jubilee got around Wes. And, uh, and Wes grew up and, and got a vision for the kingdom and something better and he's he's given his life to a lot of things including now youth and, and he leads our youth and Wes are you here stand up you handsome young man look at this guy Wes 
We want, we want to build churches that have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Elijahs and Wesses. And here's the thing, they may not look like much to you. Then, then, not them. Come on, Dron, help me, come on. Give me your hat or something. The world thinks that kids are interruptions to what they have in life. When I say things like, man, we should be tripping over ourselves to serve next-gen kids, youth, it's because God has so much in store for them. And don't see them as they are. See them for what God has called them to be. When God says things like you'll have a, a, a harvest of 30 and 60 and 100 fold, and that society, best case scenario, is you got eight times what you invested. God is saying that in the kingdom, in his kingdom, that when you invest, you get a miraculous return. You get a miraculous return in this guy right here, and in that guy.